1: Welcome to Smart People Podcast. This is Chris and this is John. I got to say, I got to give props to ourselves here. We have probably John's the smartest magician alive on the podcast. The smartest magician? Yeah, because you don't really put those two together, but you take a, you know, uh, a master's degree and an undergrad both from Ivy Leagues and this fantastic writing ability and combine it with an accomplished magician. I, I just don't feel like you find that elsewhere.
0: I know, and I was gonna say he's got to be a complete one eighty from Job on Arrested Development.
1: <laughs> you love that he brings oh, it up. Oh my gosh, too. yeah,
0: no, it's great. But that guy, that guy is a character on that show, and this guy is one of the smartest people that we've ever talked to.
1: Yeah, I mean, and and before you go, oh, this episode's about magic. Not interested. It is about a lot more than that. And our guest this week, as we mentioned, smart guy. He goes into the psychology behind it. The reason your brain just messes up at times and how you make things up and you can't pay attention and you lose focus and how you get fooled really easily. But he does it through magic, which is so cool to me.
0: Yeah. I mean, I loved magic as a kid, too. And I, like he mentioned, had a magic kit when I was growing up. But it only lasted between, like, ages 5 and 10. Yeah. And then once everybody was like, oh, you're playing with magic? <laughs> Most like, people give it up. I was just like, oh, no, no, no that's my little brother's, <laughs> not mine. Yeah, you probably were a nerd. So before we get into the interview, just want to make sure you guys head
1: over to smartpeoplepodcast.com. Check us out. We write a blog post with the interviews. That's that's pretty cool. Go to our Amazon banner at the top of the page. That is how we keep the heat on, even though we have no heat in our studio right now. And it
0: is freezing cold. It's cold in the D.C. area right now. My legs and are snowing. snowing. Yeah. Anywhere else you want people to check out? No, just head over to iTunes. Look up Smart People Podcast. Subscribe to us. Comment. Review. Yeah. Leave us some stars. It's the least you can do. Yeah, just one quick hitter there. It's a free podcast. Free podcast.
1: So anyways, this week we talked to Alex Stone, and he is the author of Fooling Houdini, Magicians, Mentalists, Math Geeks, and the Hidden Powers of the Mind. I found this book, as I mentioned in the interview, it was rated one of the top 10 nonfiction books of 2012 by Amazon. This book kills it. It's It's really cool takes you through a tour of the mind, through this subculture of magic. Alex, really smart guy. He has a degree in English, and that's from Harvard, and his master's degree in physics from Columbia. The guy could have done, like, anything. He's like, I'm going to write about magic and be awesome.
0: Yeah, and he's definitely happy doing that, too. I mean, again, another person that we talk to that you can just hear the passion that he has oh, for, yeah. for his field.
1: Oh, yeah. And it's incredible. And, uh, you know, he's written for Harper's Discover, Science, Wall Street Journal, a bunch of stuff. So great guy, great interview. We'll turn it over now to Alex Stone. (laughs) Alex, first, I just really want to say congratulations on the success of your book, Fooling Houdini. I found you because I'm a big nonfiction reader and your book was ranked in the top 10 of nonfiction on Amazon.
2: I know, I guess there must have been some sort of clerical error. I'm not <laughs> sure but it happens. It's uh,
1: great though. You know, not only is the title catchy, but the subject is catchy. It's it's a cool idea, you know, magic and I guess the subtitle, magicians, mentalists, math geeks and the hidden powers of the mind. It's a that's a catchy cool idea.
2: Oh, thanks. Yeah. Well, I think it combines a lot of elements that people might individually like be interested in individually but not be used to hearing in the same breath magic and science or magic and physics or, you know, magic and psychology, maybe they, I mean, I suspect a lot of people sort of can, you know, imagine that there might be some overlap, but I, what I've, at least the responses I've gotten from people is a lot of them are surprised to see that there are all these interconnections.
1: Yeah. I mean, actually that's literally exactly what I thought when I saw your book, because I'm, I'm a big fan of psychology and the way the mind works. I've never been a big, you know, magic kind of guy, but when I saw you kind of combine the two, I was like, "Gotta talk to him," (laughs) you know, gotta (laughs) do it. Um, So I I do want to dive into your book, but first, we do this a lot with guests, but in your case specifically because it's so cool, I want to start at the beginning. And I want you to take your entire life and sum it up into like two minutes. But that's not too much to ask, right?
2: No, there's not, <laughs> that has not that much has happened.
1: I just want to see how you got started on all this. And was it this childhood dream or did you just fall into it or, you know, yeah. how, how'd you find out about magic?
2: Well, I started doing magic when I was five. And I imagine like a lot of kids, it was because my dad bought me a magic kit like at the toy store. And uh, I was really into it. He loved it. I loved it. It's kind of how we bonded. You know, he wasn't into sports or he wasn't religious or anything. So that was sort of our thing. Uh, I think my first gig was my own sixth birthday party, which was terrible. <laughs> it was a disaster. Um, they heckled me. Uh, and then I guess I just didn't outgrow it. Like a lot of adolescent hobbies that people just outgrow, that one's just sort of stuck. And I actually became, as embarrassing as this might sound, I, I became more into it when I moved to New York as an adult. Uh, because I think that's when I discovered this whole subculture of people that are like really into magic. And not only that, but who are constantly inventing new tricks and, and developing new tricks and trying to push the envelope. Uh, this was after college when I moved to New York to be a writer, to become a science writer, uh, where I, at the time I was working at a magazine. And I, I became very entr- enchanted by this world. Uh, this was long before I ever thought I'd write about it uh, and and not just the characters and the people in this world, you know, because there's this world, it's secret societies and schools and tournaments and, you know, there's a Magic Olympics. And I was, as a writer, I thought, how come no one's ever written about this? Uh, but as just a geek, I <laughs> thought this was really cool too. Um, and then, as you suggest, I began to become increasingly aware of how much overlap there was between Magic and science, which is what you know I'd been writing about, and I eventually studied science, studied physics at grad school. Uh, and and in particular though, how how great an overlap there was between psychology and mathematics and physics and magic and all these fields that I'd always really been fascinated by. and and so that when that all sort of came together, it was a real kind of V8 moment for me and I that that's what ended up giving birth to the book. Right. But my life basically, uh, I've, I've always sort of been interested in magic. Was kind of really interested in as a kid, I kind of fell off a little bit in college, and then like came get, came back with a bang. in after college, you know, when I was a grown up, uh, and I'd always been interested in writing and science, and you know, moved to the city 10 years ago to be a science writer, to become a writer. And and this book is just the confluence of all the, of these three sort of ambitions.
1: So, is doing magic, being a magician, is that your primary career, job, everything?
2: No, no, it's not. Okay. Uh, writing, writing is my job. Okay. Uh, magic is, I guess you'd say it's somewhere, it's more than just a hobby. Right. Uh, but it's not like how I earn a living. Okay. Uh, now, now, did you, I, go ahead. I do perform magic a lot. And a lot of times it's just for fun. A lot of times, you know, it's not from people paying me. In fact, I think a lot of times people might pay me to stop. (laughs) Uh, But then like I I also I give a lot of talks and stuff. Mm -hmm. So what I a lot of times I'll what I'll do is I'll I'll give a talk about science or psychology, and it involves doing magic tricks, but it's not, I guess, a typical magic show. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I'm always doing it. And I'm always doing it just because I love it, not just because you know, for whatever. Um, but I guess day to day, how I earn a living is through my writing. So I
1: guess you could be considered the world's coolest psychology teacher if you look at it that way.
2: Um, well, <laughs> right. I, I mean, you're, you're explaining that's, the brain. That's, that's these... a tough, te- tough category because there are a lot of really kind of hip, cool psychology professors, especially <laughs> some of the ones that like came up in the sixties and seventies and did yeah. a lot of acid. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, but, yeah. but I, I, I actually might – I'm not certain yet, but I might be teaching a course next, uh, next year. It's, it's, not for, it's not certain yet, but I might end up teaching uh, a psychology course that involves magic and whatnot that's, uh, in that's New York. Awesome. So we'll see. But I would love to. And uh, I, I do think it is an unfair advantage to be able to do magic tricks in terms of like your student ratings.
1: Yeah. I mean that's all, that would definitely get people paying attention. Now, did you actually go to the Magic Olympics, which by the way I didn't even know existed? That's yeah. I mean that's the
2: thing. Uh, most people have no idea that this this world exists, and I mean this is a very organized world. Uh, there are, like I said, there are these magic societies, and there are you know schools all over the place, and and secret gatherings all you know in every city. Uh, and one of the things that's a big one of the big deals in magic is the World Championships, which takes place every three years, and commonly known as the Magic Olympics. And uh, in fact, it just happened this last summer in uh in england right before the regular non-magical olympics and uh (laughs) and it's it's a big deal i mean magicians from all over the world come like the best people they've worked for years and it's like the regular olympics in many ways are event categories and subcategories when you perform like an eight or ten minute routine in front of judges and they give you like scores numerical rankings based on you know originality showmanship whatnot and it's like figure skating basically right and uh So I, in a fit of hubris, I entered the Magic Olympics back in 06 in Stockholm, having never competed before, ever at a tournament. And I mean, I really, at the time, I was deluded. I I, honestly, looking back, I can't, it's like, I don't even recognize the thought process that went into it because it was really stupid. It was like someone who plays miniature golf occasionally deciding to challenge Tiger Woods. You know, it was like, uh, and I got my ass kicked. I mean, like just, I got owned majorly. Like, because you know, it's the best people from all over the world. It's, you know, been working for years on their act, and the, and you're performing in front of the greatest magicians alive. But in any case, there's this rule at the Magic Olympics. It says if you suck so bad that the judges within the first few minutes of your act deem you to be beneath the minimum skill level requirement that anybody just who has any business being there should should have, they illuminate a red lamp of shame. No. And no, and, and immediately at that instant, you're required, the magician is required to stop their act and leave the stage in, in, you know, in humiliation and disgrace. And then to make a long story short, you know, that horrible untoward fate happened to me at yes. the 2006 magic Olympics. And um, yes, it was a, it was a horrifying, a chastening experience to say <laughs> the least.
1: That's great. Uh,
2: yeah. So anyway, and that's, that's actually where pool Houdini starts. It starts at this, you know, me being you know basically spanked in front of a thousand people many of them children and then picking up the pieces after a suitable period of self-recrimination and you know crying and then trying to kind of really learn magic from the ground up trying to get better at it trying to you know get a teacher and go to school and achieve some sort of some level of mastery and redemption while also grasping the deeper philosophical and scientific principles the psychology the mathematics the relationships to to the science of secrecy and lying and deception and and the story of the book is basically my story of, you know, I quote unquote, comeback, but you know, really more my sort of hopes of of learning magic on some deeper level and uh, and and not just magic, but the things that surround it and give it its shape now, you mentioned
0: secret societies, and I have to ask this because that fascinates me. But have you
2: ever heard, I know what you're going to say.
0: well, have you heard from anybody within your industry for getting mad at you for writing this book? Or for oh, putting. I'm sorry,
2: I thought you were gonna. I, I thought you were gonna ask if I'd ever seen Arrested Development. Oh no, and oh it's funny you bring that God. up
0: because That's I so kept harsh. playing Final Countdown before this uh, <laughs> before this interview, and I was like, oh, I wonder if we can just put you know five or ten seconds of this song at the beginning of the interview just because of Job. That's so funny. Yeah, no, I love that show. But if this book, you know, you talk about like the science and and other stuff behind magic, have you ever been approached where people might say, hey, you might be giving a little bit too much away?
2: No, yeah, absolutely. So it's a very good question. Um, So after I went to the Magic Olympics, I wrote an article about it for Harper's where I described my own act and several of the acts and exposed some of the methods. And I did this because, well, quite frankly, I just don't think it matters. Like I think, you know, people expose tricks all the time. It, it, it's fine. Uh, I think it draws people in. I think it builds appreciation. There's plenty of tricks to go around. Never going to run out of tricks. And I think, I mean, honestly, I think one of the big problems with magic is that because it's all about hiding the method, people don't appreciate how much skill goes into it and how beautiful the methods are at times and the psychology and all that stuff. So anyway, I, and in the book, I did some a similar thing, although the article was, Maybe a little bit more exposure. Uh, in any case, after the article came out, I received a letter by certified mail from the Ethics Committee of the Society <laughs> of American Magicians, which wow. is uh, the oldest magic society. It was founded in 1902 in New York, uh, and it's the one to which I belonged, and and the one that consecrated my entrance into my like because to get to be able to compete at the Magic Olympics, you have to. It's kind of complicated. So you have to be a member of one of the magic societies that's approved by this UN-like consortium of magic organizations called the FISM. It's French. It's the Federation Internationale de Society, magique And there's like dozens of societies from all over the world that are members of this. And you have to belong to one of the societies and they get approval from the president of your society to, to compete. Any case, I got a letter from the ethics committee that said, you know, you were in violation of Article 11, Section 1, you know, whatever of the code of ethics and are hereby required to withdraw from the society. At the time, I, I was actually upset. I was kind of freaked out by it, and I, I, I challenged it with another formal letter that a lawyer friend helped, you know, me. I wrote like pursuant to your letter, you know, filled with legalese, <laughs> and I hereby reserve all. I looked through the statutes, which is like 40 pages of you know bylaws and all that stuff, and I found that there could be a trial if I wanted. And wow. it never actually went to court. But long story short, is I, I got excommunicated, much like Job. Unarrested development <laughs> from my local magic society because of this, um, and the, there are still many people, you know, who won't who won't talk to me because of it. Won't shake my hand. That's amazing. Yeah, There's some angry wizards out there. You I'm are, a, you.
1: yeah, you are a magic whistleblower.
2: <laughs> well, the thing is, it's not like I'm the first person. I mean, right. there are people like there was that show for years. Uh, you know, Magic's biggest secrets, The Masked Magician. I love that That was on for show. years. Yeah. And when that first came out, I mean, magicians acted like it was the end of days, like, it, like they were like, it, this is like it's the horsemen of the apocalypse, like it's over. Uh, but the truth is that only made people more interested in magic. And it actually, I think it spurred interest in it and it made people more curious. And I, I think it's, a, you know, it's like a big, a big, you know, to do about nothing. It was actually not, it didn't really hurt anyone. And I think, uh, but yeah, but anyway, the, so there are definitely in answer to your question, some, you know, some people who. Although I would say it's a small minority of people, I think by and large, like most people have really been positive about the book because I think they see what it what it is, which is essentially a 300-page love letter to magic. I mean it's incredibly you – know, it's not like I'm making fun of it or vandalizing it. Uh, but, yep, there's definitely some of the more old-school doctrinaire types who really disapprove of Of me breaking the magician's code, which is a very real thing. And all members of the societies are required to swear an oath of secrecy.
1: Wow. I never knew it went so deep. It does. I can imagine that. Yeah. One thing, so there's a quote in your book, you say, magic at its core is about toying with the limits of perception. And I really like that. That kind of brought me in because, again, unless you're deep into magic or you see it a lot, I don't think you take it for that. I think you just go, ah, oh, the guy's got some props and mm-hmm. he, you know, he's got a trick deck of cards so anybody could do it. But yeah, yeah, you know, you don't think about it's, you have to incorporate all these things, especially in the more intense, I would imagine, um, tricks and everything. So I was hoping you could talk about how magic has, what, what kind of insight it's given you into the way people perceive the world.
2: I think that's really what, kept me interested in magic long-term was that it really does teach you a whole lot about human nature and how people see the world and how people behave and why they tend to notice certain things and not others and why they tend to remember things a certain way or not remember things a certain way and why they make decisions in you know certain types of decisions and why they tend to think that they made a free choice when they didn't so magic is all about manipulating those things right magicians manipulate by manipulating your attention what you see and, and there and, and, you know, what you remember, what, you know, the choices you've made, whether you think you've acted freely or, or, or haven't. And the thing is, like, this is all rooted in a literature, a psychological literature that has its basis in laboratory experiments uh, that goes, you know, back decades, you know, experiments on so-called inattentional blindness, which is, you know, our failure to detect to see things that happen right in front of our eyes when we're distracted. Or change blindness, which is our failure to detect discontinuities in consecutive scenes when we're distracted. You see this in films that have continuity errors, errors. You know, this is a, a very common thing. You, know, this is, uh, you see it in false memories, which has is, is been you know, studied and and, and, you know, and people argue about it in terms of the criminal justice system and eyewitness misidentification. So the point is, I guess, that I'm trying to make is that there are all these psychological phenomena, these cognitive biases, glitches in our awareness, gaps in our perception, that are that are very real and, and govern how we see the world on a day-to-day basis. And magic is exploiting those. Magic is literally tapping into those. And it's true, like you said, like some tricks are really just stupid. Oh, it's a trick, whatever. Right. But the most the more interesting tricks, and most tricks ultimately, the the ones that are truly lasting and beautiful uh, and effective are the ones that work by exploiting these cognitive mechanisms that are etched into our brains and that that evolve you know our brains evolved that way and they're they're, what they are is a flip side of of things that are that are powerful that you know our ability for instance to pay attention on one thing is really really useful but it also means that you know if we're just if we're paying attention to the wrong thing we're prone to miss something else that's maybe quite obvious it falls outside the zone of our fixation so so magic when you do it you really do kind of get like a sixth sense for how these, for these sort of psychological glitches. And it's very cool. And it teaches you a lot about how the mind works and, you know, not just, you know, in a casual way, but scientists have even used the techniques. I mean, when you look at this literature, you, and you look at these experiments, I spent a lot of time looking at these experiments. You, you find that a lot of them are essentially just magic tricks. Like they'll bring someone into a lab and they'll do something and they'll switch two photos and and, you'll, and even in the experiments, they'll, be, they'll use a technique and you'll say, "Oh, I know them you know, that was invented by a magician." And so you, what you realize is that in a way, scientists and psychologists and, and neuroscientists in the last couple of decades have, have sort of been using the techniques of a lot of times using the techniques of magic and the principles of magic to sort of model experimentally what it's, magicians kind of have known intuitively for, for a long time, you know right. which is you know, how the brain works and why people behave in certain ways.
1: Yeah. Nah, and that, that's actually a great summation of it. Now, you also say competitive magicians live to fool other magicians. Yeah, and, definitely. And what's cool about that is I want to ask if the magician knows what's supposed to be coming or they have a trained eye.
2: Yeah, yeah. That's a great question. Yeah, so how
1: do you do that? And then is it is it I mean, that means it's truly hardwired in your brain, no matter how you try to escape it.
2: Well, it's a combination of things. One, that's a huge part of it, right? Is that we're just, there's certain things that are basic to being human, right? But the other thing is that there's, you know, a lot of ingenuity and creativity in magic. And this is one of the things that I think when I first discovered this world really kind of surprised me in, 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 and, and drew me in, which is that it, it, magic, I, I, you know, a lot of people I think kind of view magic as this staid sort of odd valera thing. It's the same 12 tricks. But really it's like not a week goes by that somebody doesn't come up with a new trick, reinvent an old one. It's very innovative. It feels almost like a like a like the technology field or like you know, like a like you're in Silicon Valley or something. Like there are all these new ideas and it, it feels very fertile. And so these tournaments are, you know, magicians who are inventing new stuff all the time. And I think, you know, people tend to think that magicians are unfoolable, that they know everything, but it's not true. Like magicians are always frying that's what they like to say, fry, <laughs> frying each other with new stuff. And it's a testament to how brilliant and ingenious and, and, and creative these people are, that they're always pushing the envelope. And when they talk about it, they say, oh, this is c- cutting edge and you know, new age magic. I- I'll just give you a real quick story just because I love it. Sure. Um, there was this, this relatively famous magician in the world of magic. He's named Leonard Green. He was a doctor and he'd fiddle around with cards at late night when he was working. And um, he entered the Magic Olympics one year uh, and uh, performed this very bizarre and baffling card routine. And the judges, who were all expert magicians, mind you, these were the best magicians in the world, disqualified him because they said that his tricks were impossible unless he was using a trick deck, like a gimmick deck, right. and they accused him of using plants, like stooges in the audience, to shuffle the cards for him, which is expressly forbidden. That's instant disqualification at the Olympics. Oh. But the thing is, they were wrong. It's actually, he hadn't been doing, doing any of that. He had just invented this whole new repertoire of slights and tricks and, and clever deceptions that was so original and so powerful, it fooled all these experts, and it fooled them so badly that they thought he was cheating. And you know, three years later, he went back and sort of did the same, had established himself, and did the same routine, and gave them the cards to inspect afterwards. And now he's a legend. he won gold, and and there are examples of this all the time, which is is nice to me. That's really cool. That you know, you, no matter how much you know about magic, I I guarantee you, some 16 year old kid's gonna come around. Come around. I don't care if you're David Copperfield or David Blaine or or whatever. And fool your pants off, completely destroy you. There's always some new trick out there that that will fool every magician on the planet.
1: Yeah, and that is that's so cool, and that that's just a, a great story. Now, in in terms of deceiving these people, and the the judges or your audience or whatever it might be, what has it taught you on how to do that? Like, what is a way, a very common way? I guess we're looking for a little glimpse into yeah. the world that people just every time they fall for it you just look at them and you're like you're an idiot like every time
2: you mean like in terms of actual tricks or yeah i mean
1: i guess in terms of tricks but in terms of exploiting the brain's weaknesses or whatever what do all magicians know is it you know look over here so that i can do something down here or what what kind of things is it
2: yeah so um it's less that, – like that's the typical sort of uh, conventional view of misdirection is that it's, oh, look over here while I do something else over here. But actually – and that's part of it. But actually it turns out <clears> – <throat> and there's a science scientific literature on this that it, you can be looking right at something and not see it if you're distracted. And that doesn't mean – so that doesn't mean you're looking elsewhere. And then they've done you know, this famous gorilla video experiment you might have seen or heard yeah. of, you know, where they show people a video of video of people passing a basketball around, and they ask them to count the number of passes. And halfway through the video, a gorilla walks across – a woman in a gorilla suit walks across the screen. The people are, are looking right at it and yet more than 50 percent of viewers don't see the gorilla. Right. That's not – it, again, it's not because they're not looking at it. It's because they're distracted. So when you're a magician, you learn a lot of techniques for – how to capture someone's attention. And sometimes that's saying their name. Sometimes it's asking questions. A lot of times it's also about imp- using suggestions to – like one thing I've learned is you can very easily manipulate the way people remember stuff. Uh, just by – like one technique that you'll, I'll use a lot for instance is, um, is to basically elide – so, okay, I'll give you an example. It's hard to explain. But, like, uh, let's say I a, I'll want to do i do a trick for someone where i make their card come to the top and I'll say something like, oh, would it be impressive if I could do this trick without even shuffling the deck? And then I give them the cards. Or without even, without even touching the deck, rather, you know? Right. And the truth is I've actually touched the deck maybe only for a second, but in that second I've done whatever sleight of hand I'm going to do. And by asking that question and getting them to agree to it, I'm basically, like, piggybacking one question on another. Because if they say yes... And they're agreeing to the assumption of that question, which is that I didn't touch the deck when in fact I did. Right. And that's powerful because later on they're apt to remember it wrong because it's been shown in many studies that just the mere act of imagining something is enough to create a false memory of it. And you can use that kind of technique all over the place. I mean, another thing is, you know, the way you guide people's choices in magic and get them to think, I mean, that they picked a card freely when in fact you really just handed it to them. <laughs> and this idea of like the way people like, look back on their choices and think that they've acted freely is happens in business and life. Like there's, I mean, there's these classic studies for instance that like, if you ask someone, you know, are you happy as opposed to, are you not happy? You know, like you'll get a different type of response from people or, you know, they, there's so how you phrase a question in other words can make a big difference in how people respond and how people, how people perceive the answer. Uh, so that's another thing. And, and also you just get a sense for like what kinds of things people notice and, and what, and you have also like a way of directing people's answers. Oh, you know, where you might, maybe you want someone to, to suggest, make a suggestion, right? But you, you want it to appear like it came from them. I mean, this is a very common negotiation strategy, right? If you want someone to agree to something, the best way isn't, is to get them to think it's their idea. right? Right, right. If you want to say, oh, I want to do this, you know, it's not so great. But if you if you get them to make things, you know, if you convince them that it's their idea and then you agree to it, well, then you're you're set. The magic you do that all the time, like, uh, oh, where would you like, uh, you know, where should I make the card appear? Uh, I don't know, like, you know, in my pocket, in my hat, in your in your pocket, her, you know, and you you just get them to, you know. You you basically implant these suggestions and then get them to basically suggest it back to you. Right. And then um, and then there's a whole other like there's a, the field of mentalism where there's another side of magic which is mind reading and cold reading and all that. And that's another field where you begin to realize that you can get a lot of mileage for good or for ill by just kind of making general statements about people, asking leading questions, and then basically just reading back what the, what they've told you. And I don't know. So you just there are all these little tendencies that you become aware of and. And, and you see these tendencies all over the place. You see them in advertising and politics and in business and, you know, you see them being used by psychics and salespeople and whatnot. So, so I don't know. Yeah. I I, hope that was a bit of a meandering answer. No,
1: no, that was great. I was actually, it was interesting when you were talking about uh, shuffling the deck and asking a question, you know, is it okay? I, I actually realized that I was mentally picturing that happen. So I wasn't even really paying attention to exactly what you were saying. I was just imagining you not touching a deck of cards. So I could see if you did that in front of me in person, you could literally be fondling the deck of cards. Yeah. And I'd be like, totally, man, you're, you're amazing. <laughs> I, I would have just been completely distracted.
2: Yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty surprising how, you know, one of the things you realize too, like when you do magic, is that people will come up to you and, and they'll say, oh, I saw such and such person do this trick. And you'll recognize the trick. You'll know what trick it is. But then they'll describe it in such a way that makes it much, much more difficult or even impossible. And it's because they remembered it wrong. Huh. And that's because magicians – I mean it's hard enough to remember everyday stuff correctly. It turns out that you know, we remember stuff falsely all the time and this is a serious problem in criminal justice systems and whatnot. But it's, in magic, we exploit it intentionally. And so you, you say all kinds of things with the intention of getting people to remember a trick completely wrong later on. So then when they tell their friends about it, you'll sound like you really are, you know, Jesus returned.
1: <laughs> right. So now in writing this book, what was kind of the process? I mean, I'm sure, like you said, this wasn't something that was on your mind the whole time or it wasn't even a reason you were interested in magic. The book was probably a byproduct of that. Did you just say, I need to share this or people don't understand the link? And then how did you kind of go through that?
2: Yeah, it was sort of like that. I mean, it was kind of gradual. I've been in the magic forever and then I got really into this world and I've been sort of actively hanging out in it for years. Uh, I remember I used to annoy my coworkers. I was working in a magazine at Discover way back, and I would do magic tricks at work all the time. I was kind of surprised I never got fired. Uh, <laughs> and I would talk about it, and I would share with people. I would I always want to tell people, and I would always be learning new tricks. And I'd I'd be like, Oh man, this they just invented this new trick. It's it's totally like all oh, the rage. It's totally cutting edge. Well, you know, I talk about these. Oh, I just saw this guy lecture. He's the best coin expert in the world. And oh, this guy just invented this new system for shuffling. You know, I'd be really into it, and people would. I think that enthusiasm would actually catch on to some extent. Sure. And finally, someone suggested that you know I should write about it. And I started by writing that piece about the Olympics because I thought that was one of these classic journalistic things where I was like, no one has written about this. Right. This has to be written about. Like, right. uh, and then gradually I realized, yeah, that there was enough there. I mean I, I was kind of shocked also that I was, you know because there's a book about all these different subcultures you know, Scrabble and orca collectors and chess and, you know, poker. And, but no one had written a book about this very, very interesting world. Huh. And so as, you know, as a writer, I thought this is really rich. And yeah, like you said, I eventually I I realized, yeah, I really want to share this. I was really excited about it. I, it. It was all these interests I'd had melded into one. And I would just get so excited about material that I really I wanted to share it. And as a writer, it was just kind of a dream come true because it was just really cool material that hadn't really been written about right uh, yeah it's sort of gradual i guess but yeah you know, pretty gra- in a way it was kind of gradual
1: yeah and you know i saw on your book you know josh foer who wrote moonwalking with einstein did,
2: did, yes did you, a great book.
1: did you talk to him at all or because it's a similar idea i mean it, it's we're actually going to interview him in a few months and it's based on memory and and it's this whole subculture that nobody knows exists. So yeah. I was wondering if like there was any interaction there.
2: Yeah. I mean, let's see. So I knew Josh, uh, we actually have the same agent as it turns oh, out. Okay. Um, and so I remember I started writing my book before his came out. Okay. So his book came out, I think like what, a couple years ago. Yeah. I want to say two, um, but I definitely knew his story. Okay. And, and 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 you're totally right. Like they're very similar kinds of books, right? It's this, you know, you dive into a subculture and and try to get you know learn this thing and write about it. Um, maybe the one difference is that I had sort of been interested in magic since I was a kid, uh, sure. whereas Josh, um, and to his credit, because it's kind of amazing, basically started from zero and within the span of 1 year became the US memory champion. He he had done he had never done any I mean he like he didn't even know about this world right. and then I think he wrote a piece about it and he was like well how what if I train for a year how could I do mm. and then incredibly he somehow managed to win it <laughs> because he's really really smart yeah. and worked really hard and because he used these powerful techniques that, you know, he learned from these numinists, you know, these very, succ- you know, these talented guys and these, you know, champion numinists. Um, So, but yeah, you're right. It, it's very much similar. Like it, what he does essentially for memory, I'm trying to do for magic. In exactly. My yeah,
1: exactly. Yeah, exactly. And that's why it's so fascinating. I mean, it's it's these things, shortcuts through the mind and the way that people have, people find these niche things and get so good at it that, I mean, that's why we wanted to have you on. People can learn from it and expand their previous knowledge or of a subject that is out there, but people don't often think about it.
2: Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I think there's two things. One, it's, you know, that the world, you know, of these people is interesting because they're colorful and weird and funny and often very brilliant people. Uh, But I think the deeper thing uh, is, you know, that this stuff goes beyond the subculture itself. So in Josh's book, yeah, it's about these guys who memorize decks of cards and digits of pi to 60,000 places. But ultimately, it's about how we remember things, how we rely on external devices to remember things, and what you know, what our, how we can all better our memory, and what memory means about you know being human. Right. So it, it's something that resonates, I think, in relation to everyone. And, and magic, it's similar in, the, in that it's not just about card tricks. You know, there are these kooky guys, and it's the societies and the Magic Olympics and all this weird, fun, interesting stuff in that regard. But then it's also, like you said, that, that magic teaches us what a, a lot about how our minds works, how everybody's brain works, how we perceive the world. Um, every day, even when we're just driving down the street and you know talking on a phone or or, or talking to, or trying to decide between you know flavors of ice cream at the supermarket, like these psychological mechanisms come into play all the time. So what I hoped or what I tried to do in fooling Houdini, aside from just sharing this adventure in this world with people, was also show how by looking at this somewhat esoteric seeming subject, you can actually learn some pretty general stuff about about human nature, the nature of perception.
1: Yeah. And I mean, that's the best part about you having written this book. Being a writer, I think, gives it a, a much better flow. And it's it's just very good. You know, you do a great job in connecting people who might not understand it, but really diving in. So it's a great book. I recommend everybody check it out. It's called Fooling Houdini, Magicians, Mentalists, Math Geeks, and the Hidden Powers of the Mind. Alex, thanks again for being on the show. I wanted to see if you had a blog or you do anything else where people can continue to kind of learn about this and pick your brain virtually.
2: Uh, Yeah, two places I would point you to, or three actually. Well, first, my website, which is just very easy, foolinghoudini.com. And I don't post a ton on that, not as much as I should, but... On that, you can also link to my Facebook author page where I post quite a lot. Okay. I usually post a lot of stuff about science and psychology and magic, and also to t- my Twitter, which is Alex R. Stone. And uh, so with those uh, so actually mostly through Facebook and Twitter, but occasionally also through my author page, Boo Houdini, uh, I, I try to you know post regularly about psychology and science and, and also articles that I write, right. uh, which generally are in this vein, you know, or, or, or usually focus on some aspect of science. So what, um, what do you to, plan on writing next? Uh, you mean, well, so I'm right sure you're
1: going to write another book.
2: A little, quite a bit. Um, I just, you know, I write for the Times sometimes. Like, I just wrote a piece about teaching computers how to laugh. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but right now, I'm gearing up to do another book, and uh, it's it's still in its very very early stages. Okay. So, um, but it's and well, what I'll say is it's it's kind of a similar tone but a very very and a similar kind of breakdown but a very different subject awesome. not about magic at all
1: right right well i'm looking forward to it because these i love these types of books it's like a mix between nonfiction and fiction because it's it's definitely real but it's not reading somebody's biography you know it's it's like a, a cool story and and uh, travel that you take
2: thanks so much it's a yep. uh, very flattering. <laughs>
1: no, absolutely. All right. Again, Alex, <coughs> thanks so much for being on the show. Best of luck on your new book and uh, good job on fooling Houdini. Really good stuff.
2: All right. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. All right. Have a good weekend. Okay. Same to you. All right, Bye. Bye-bye.
1: See you
0: later, Alex. Hope you guys enjoyed that interview with Alex Stone and all the Arrested Development references. I know I did. One of my favorite shows ever. Yeah, you were yeah, nerding I out a little. Try to convince Chris to watch it. Not a fan. One day, one day
1: thanks for tuning in as always we're bringing great episodes we as mentioned in the episode we'll have josh Foer, author of moonwalking with einstein i really hope that's how you pronounce his last name but he is awesome too so we'll have him on in the future we got a good lineup SmartPepodcast.com, facebook twitter all that good stuff uh we're just trying to build a community and keep things going spread the word and keep tuning in
0: and shoot us an email or tweet at us. I get bored nowadays. Yeah, you do. Because Hit me up. like the easiest thing ever. All right, guys. See, see you like. guys next week.